This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne. Welcome to Safe Space Radio for Courageous Conversations. Today is the second to last show in our series on child abuse. We've talked about the extent of child abuse, the long-term consequences of child abuse, and we've heard stories of recovery from emotional abuse, domestic violence, and sexual abuse. Today, I'll be talking with musician and advocate Michael Skinner about the combination of physical, sexual, and emotional abuse in his own life, and how his music and his work as an advocate and educator has helped him recover from prolonged neglect and abuse at the hands of both of his parents that went on from birth really till the age of 15 or 16. We're not going to dwell on the stories of abuse except to explore some of the legacy of this abuse in Michael's life as an adult. Our hope in bringing you this story is that as a culture, we become more aware of the extent of child abuse and its consequences so that we become a safer place for children and adults to seek safety and to get help. The subjects we're going to be talking about today may be quite painful to hear, and so parental discretion is advised. Michael Skinner is an award-winning advocate for trauma and abuse survivors. As a survivor himself, he uses public speaking and music to address issues of stigma and discrimination against those with mental health challenges. He's appeared at the National Press Club, on Oprah, the United Nations, and the State Department, speaking out against the sexual exploitation of children. Michael Skinner is the founder of Surviving Spirit, a nonprofit that offers hope, healing, and help through the creative arts and advocacy. Welcome to Safe Space, Michael. Thank you. I'd like to start by having you tell me just a little bit about who your family is, how many people were in it, where you grew up, and just kind of set the stage for what follows. All right. I'm originally from Massachusetts. I was born in Boston, and I lived there and in Cambridge, Massachusetts, till the age of six, and then the family I was part of moved up to Billerica, Mass., which is basically 18, 20 miles outside of Boston and Cambridge. And it was a working-class, middle-class town. And I was the oldest of five siblings. Okay. And so what I understand from you is that your parents engaged in, in abuse of you and, your, and all your siblings in, in sort of every way possible. And... I wonder if you could just give us a sense of what does that mean? I mean, what are we, what are we actually talking about? It was, when I say a house of confusion and terror, and I always likened, because I've always studied history as soon as I could read, and, and that was one of my saving graces, one of my tools for survival is you know, reading. I read a lot on survivors of the Holocaust, and... I always likened my parents to, uh, they, if it was another time, another place, they would have been the you know, SS guards in a concentration camp where people were being exterminated. That's how I viewed them, because they were perverse in the, I, you know, it, it was sexual abuse, it just, you know, but it was also the physical, the mental, and the emotional torture that was, you know, inflicted upon us, you know, and there was a psychological terror. I can remember being two or three years old, being at the ocean, and him holding my hand and walking me out to the ocean waves, and this, they're coming in. 
and we got out far enough, and then he let go of my hand as the waves came in, and it brought me under. And I remember, I can still, as I'm sharing this with you, I remember how terrified I was as a, this little toddler underneath those waves, scared out of my mind. Not, I didn't know how to swim, losing my breath, swallowing the water, and then he pulls me out, and he was laughing uncontrollably. He thought it was funny. Michael, his capacity for empathy with you. There, there was none. There was even, I remember at four or five years old, I, I loved little soldiers, you know, all the stuff that, you know, kids you know, back then did. And I remember one day setting up all my soldiers because I had this bookshelf and they were all in order along with my trucks and different things. And he came home early one day from work and I said, you know, you know, Daddy, do you want to see what I did? And I brought him in, and he said, sure, Mike, I want to, you know, he was all excited. And I was all excited thinking, oh, my father wants to see what I've done. And he comes into the bedroom, and all my toys are all lined up. He then goes over and tips it over, and just, again, laughing. This this was a joke to him. So I learned not <laughs> to try to share things with him. In terms of the physical abuse, I never knew as a young boy or even an early teen, when I was going to get hit, you know, and people hear of physical abuse, okay, that that in of itself is, it, it, it's wrong. But when it's done with intent, and my father would hit me in the back with his fist full force, and again, this would come out of the blue, so I never knew when I was going to be walking by him whether he was going to sucker punch me in the gut or give me a kidney punch in the back I would literally fall to the floor out of breath because, again, as I share with you, he, he knew how to hit. He knew how to fight. He was what we used to call back then a leg breaker. In other words, he was the man, if you owed a gambling debt or a loan shocking debt and you weren't paying it, he was the man who came <clears throat> to visit you and you either paid up or he would hurt you. And I remember, you know, Betty, my mother, talking about, how he would show up at someone's home and just take all their pay and, you know, destroy part of the house to set an example. So I'm sharing a lot on him. Hers was also brutal. She was horrible and sadistic, but in comparison to my father's pain that he inflicted upon me, uh, you know, if you put it on a scale of 1 to 10, you know, she was a 6 or 7. He was, you know, 12 off the chart. So... And tell, tell me, Michael, the story of what she would say to you about, I mean, how old was she when she had you? She was pregnant, I think, you know, 20, maybe 21, with me out of wedlock. And so I heard from her over and over again how I ruined her life. I heard that from him, how I ruined his life. You know, they both had dreams, they had plans, and I ruined their life. I was severely asthmatic. And I would be rushed to the hospital, and I was blamed for that, that I was the cause of their poverty. And it had nothing to do with his drinking or womanizing or gambling, but it was my medical bills, supposedly. Michael, when I hear your story, it's it's just so heartbreaking to imagine a child so innocent being treated so brutally and being told that you have ruined your parents' lives. It's almost unbearable to hear it, and I can't even imagine what it must have been like to to survive it. It's, you know, 
one of the tools that I had, of course, back then I didn't know what it was. I, as an adult, I do was, you know, my spacing out, and I had these, you know, these out-of-body experiences that I'd be looking down upon these scenes, and, you know, for the longest time, uh, I thought I was crazy because, you know, the, the, these were not normal things that, you know, children do, but, you know, later on in life learning about dissociation, and that was another thing that I would read up a lot on. So, uh, yes, and what we know, of course, is that dissociation is a highly protective, adaptive response to repetitive trauma right. as a way to not, not experience it consciously or all of it, you know, in a really present way. And that's what I know as an adult now. But back then, I just thought, you know, if I ever told anyone about this, they'd think I was crazy. So I want to talk to you a little bit more about what happened as an adult. So you survive years of recurrent kind of relentless trauma as a boy. And then what I understand is that you got married, you had a very successful business, you were a musician performing, had five children of your own. And then sometime in around 1992, 1993, you started having horrible flashbacks. What was it that happened during that time that seemed to bring it all back? There were several things that were going on. The death of my brother David was weighing heavily on me from suicide. A few of my other siblings were now going into psychiatric hospitals because they were dealing with the child abuse issues, so that was bubbling up and gurgling. And I had a former client, a um, musician, who had started calling anonymously and threatening me at my work and also at my home and threatening with what he was going to do to my wife and daughters. Now, I, I was, I've never had much high regard for myself in terms of my life, but that uh, I was so protective of my ex-wife and five daughters that that, that put a real fear in me. And so that brought up a lot of the past of you know, the horrors of you know being threatened before as a child. And at the same time, Anne, I also think because I had been doing so much work on myself to heal, I was going to adult children of alcoholics, I was slowing down, and I was taking more time to spend with my family, I was I had been in the martial arts a lot, I was hiking, I was doing all these good things for myself, and I think a combination of the fear that was going on of being threatened, what was happening with my siblings, the loss of a sibling to suicide, and also the fact that I was starting to feel better about myself and do things, I think, in its own little strange way, it gave me the safety, if you will, to say it's time to deal with these issues. Um, of course, it didn't make sense for me back then at the time, but these little bits and pieces had started really surfacing a lot. And they used, to, they always used to look to me like a Polaroid snapshot. It was just a picture that would appear in my head, and then I would do everything in my power to stuff that down and what happened was it just became too much and those little series of snapshots it just became a rolling film and it was as, it was as if I was watching a movie to my life it was quite intense and I was just overwhelmed I have known a lot of pain in my life but it, it literally felt as if my body was on fire it was just it was it was quite painful as well as the emotional piece to it so so, so what I'm hearing is, Michael, is that 
in the context of feeling threatened and afraid. Right. And also in the context of the, the death of one of your brothers. Mm-hmm. That all this stream of memories comes rushing back. And I, I gather in that time, there was a lot of... It was a, just a very, very difficult time. You were in and out of the hospital several times in day treatment, um, became formally diagnosed with PTSD, and had a number of not always helpful encounters with the mental health system, I gather. No, because this is where I really take exception to the words, you know, mentally ill, because I just kept hearing this over and over again, that I'm mentally ill, that I was treated as a defective. And you know, and I, you know, I I had a life. I was married. I owned a home. I owned a business. I had employees. I I had a lot. You know, and I'm only saying that to show that I I got this through hard work and and I had to have some sense of intelligence to do these things to work with people around the country. And now, because I'm having a hard time with my trauma issues, you know, I was treated like a child. So so it sounds like your experience was that instead of being treated as if you were having, in some ways, a normal response to a terribly abnormal set of experiences, instead you were being treated as if you were defective. Right. As if, you know, because when I just described to you how the snapshots and then it became like a movie, and I have, I have shared this sometimes when I speak, I said it felt like, you know, I the VCR, like, you know, movie was put in and I had to watch it. I went back later to look at some of my, you know, I say medical records, the psychiatric records, and this psychiatrist, he wasn't even listening to me. In his notes, he writes, he thinks he's a VCR player. Oh. And I was sharing the same thing that I'm saying. I was drawing an analogy. Yes. Uh, And it's things like that. At the same time, in I did meet some helpful folks, but when they're part of the system, they can't do the type of work that's needed to be done with folks like us who've experienced trauma in all of its forms. Well, let's talk about that. What was the work that did need to be done, and how did you find it? Well, I think the simplest thing, I when I was in, count, in a counseling session with this woman who who was very helpful, and she reframed it. She's, I'm saying, you know, the breakdown. She said, no, Michael, you didn't have a breakdown. You had a breakthrough. And she encouraged me to tell my story, whereas other people, other counselors, when I say other people, if I'd start to say something, I heard that, that was in the past. You need to put that behind you. <laughs> well, trust me, I've been trying to do that for the last 39, 40 years, and obviously it didn't work. It came back to haunt me so that's so confusing to me though because people come to therapy so that they can tell their story so that they don't get told move on the way they're told by the rest of the world but it sounds like you were told to move on even within therapy yes even i used to do this a lot in in my presentations because um i have this song called sorrow and before i start i always i say how many folks have heard this statement just get over it. It's in the past. And I guarantee you the majority of the room, if their peers, are raising their hand. Right. Well, maybe that's a perfect segue because I want to play a clip from your music. And Sorrow is actually the first song I'd like to 
to play. So here's a clip from Michael Skinner's song, Sorrow. People say, think happy thoughts, and love just go away. People say, sing happy songs, this love just go away. Let me take from you all that you hold dear. And I want to hear you sing. I want to hear you sing loud and clear. And I want to hear you sing. I want to hear you sing loud and clear. Can you sing to me, please? So I hear in some ways the the anger in that song mm-hmm. that's saying, how dare you say, just get over it. Right. Let me take everything from you that's dear and see how well you do. Right. At that point, you know, I'd only lost one brother to suicide, but I'd lost so much in my life, you know, childhood and just the way I was treated horrifically as a child and a teenager. And then, unfortunately, you know, my wife, my partner of 21 years, had, you know, divorced me and used the mentally ill label throughout the proceedings. So it just, and that was another where I learned stigma and discrimination. And I was kept from my five children. This, and there was never a history of violence or abuse at either her or the kids. Just the darn stigma of those two words mentally ill or mental illness. So what I'm sensing is that the forces of silencing have been so powerful. Mm-hmm. You know, as a child, the literal terror you were living in, the the suicide of your brothers, which silenced their voices, the, th- the mental health community itself telling you not to speak. I'll be honest with you, Michael, when I heard about the extent of abuse in your life and that it and that it felt sadistic, you know, that your parents actually enjoyed it. There was a part of me, and I do a show that's all about speaking about subjects that are hard to speak about. There was a part of me that almost couldn't bear to go there. Right. And so I just want to acknowledge that even even well-meaning people who who believe in the power of telling stories, it's it's hard, so hard to take in and to imagine you as a as an innocent boy being treated that way it's it's hard to bear it has been and it's you know it still is i still i'm okay because i i do what i need to do to stay healthy but you know stuff comes up and i just go in my backyard and putz around or do something proactive but i i have this statement that i say that when people will ask me uh, what do you do for work and i say well i'm a musician which is true and then i'll and then they'll probe a little more, and I'll say, I also do advocacy around the issues of trauma, abuse, and mental health. And if they ask, you know, well, what do you mean by that? Without even getting, you know, when I just go into the details of child abuse, it's almost as, it's as if you're sucking the oxygen out of the room, and you just see their faces, and then they want no more of the part of the conversation, and away they go. And so... Even though I'm open about these things, I'm also guarded because I, I just realize that it is what you were just talking about. It, it's still a difficult subject that people don't 
want to hear, but yet we need to have that conversation. So I want to ask you in closing, I want, I want you to tell me more about the role of music in your own recovery. Because you've written, you have three albums out. I understand there's a fourth on the Correct. way, is that yeah. right? And in many of your albums, your work in some way acknowledges your life experiences. And I'd like to play one more clip. Um, okay. And then I'd like to hear a little bit about how how writing these songs has helped you and sharing them. So the the next clip I want to play is from a song called Pirates. I'm going to play the first verse, and it's it's about sort of, I hear it sort of reminding yourself Mm -hmm. about not getting seduced into thinking something different than what you think. So let's play it, and then we'll talk more about it. Said sailor, remember why you chose to leave this place. Changing your mind in the storm toss sea keeps you floundering upon that misery sea. Taking shots from a cannonade, I see pirates chasing your sails. Throw your caution to the wind, position your ship so the sun shines in their face. Okay, so I'm just going to read those words aloud in case they're hard to hear. Before you set sail, remember why you chose to leave this place. Changing your mind in a storm-tossed sea keeps you floundering upon that misery sea. So I'd love to ask you, it sounds like you're sort of talking to yourself there, trying to trying to sort of say to yourself, if you ever get weak, if you ever start getting tempted to go back, remember, remember why you had to leave. Remember how bad it was, effectively. And I want to ask you about that. What were you What were you trying to prevent by singing that to yourself? Well, what you just said is it, it, true. In, in all my songs, it is in, in a dialogue to myself to sort of remind myself and keep myself in check. Uh, and I, it's very easy for me to want to go back to the workaholic days and and just you know, to just function and disappear, and, and not in terms of suicide, but to just disappear from people and just go back to just working and just staying nonstop. I've even thought of being a truck driver, just, you know, going back and forth across the country and just be anonymous. But I'm also mindful that that's not healthy. I I, I did that for years. Um, I, I can't go back to that. It's helpful to hear that because I didn't understand that. I thought you were talking about sort of leaving some, you know, idealized notion of your own family. But no, it's your own your own adult kind of workaholic self. You're trying you're trying not to get seduced and, back into. And also, though, what you just said, though, it is. I can't go back to the old family. I've I've had to learn to forge a new life because I kept praying and hoping and was fighting tooth and nail to get that back to happen. And then I realized it's not going to happen. So. That was also part of it that I had to let I had to let that go. 
I had to let that go, as painful as that was. Because I was always torn, well, what if I don't fight hard enough to get back to my kids and my siblings? And I realized, no, um, let it be. You know, that's, you know, let someone go. If they love you, they'll come back. And that's, and Do you have contact with your children now? My three oldest, it, it's intermittent. It's, 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 it's on and off, and it's just so it's, it, I wouldn't, it's pretty much non-existent. It's mm. so, and I'm it's painful. That. It's hard. Yeah, it's and so I, painful. So I've had to accept that. And I, under, you know, people, that, that's another subject people don't want to hear about is parental alienation. Well, it, it does happen because, you know, I, there were these five beautiful young ladies who loved me and now they were taught to be afraid of me. And, you know, this is part of one of the many reasons why I speak out on about stigma and discrimination to raise this awareness that because it's not just my story and I, I know too many other men and women who have experienced these same things so so, so I want to ask you I'm gonna I can feel my own um, hesitation to ask you this but I want to ask you was there any time during the period when you were having your breakthrough that your behavior might have been frightening to a child, that might have been unpredictable, that because I'm just wondering if it's more complicated. I I'm quite open about that. That there was a few times that I had a flashback that just came out of the just came out of nowhere, and of course that scared my children. I had an unfortunate suicide attempt. I've apologized to the three oldest who are aware of it, and I have I've, I have told them repeatedly they have every right to be angry. They have every right to have been afraid back then. But at the same time, we need awareness and education that, hey, this is what's happening. How can, you know, you don't have to be afraid of it. There was no violence or anything, but, but to witness your father going into a flashback and crawling into a corner, that is going to be frightening. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. But what, but what I'm also hearing is that they were not taught to ha to have compassion. That's they were not taught to have the compassion. That's because that what what we're describing, what you're describing, is an experience where you were suffering terribly, and they were not taught to see it that way. Part of what I understand, Michael, is that you, having done so much work to recover, not only from the trauma but from the losses that then followed the PTSD, is that you created this nonprofit, Surviving Spirit. And, and I'd like to end with telling, asking you to tell me a little bit about what the vision of Surviving Spirit is and how you hope to help others who suffer from PTSD. One of the things I've always tried to do in anything that I do, whether music, writing, speaking, whatever, is to show and offer hope, healing, and help. And I realized many years ago that being a musician opened a lot of doors for me to raise this awareness. And in those travels, I met a lot of other musicians and artists and poets and, and authors, writers. And I thought, wow, wouldn't it be great if we had this place that we could share what they're doing to show that 
there is life after these things because you know, so many times you hear that people aren't going to move ahead or move on. And, and these folks were showing exactly the opposite. And then also the website was to also be a place to offer as many resources around the issues of trauma, abuse, and mental health because, uh, and with alternatives and, and alternative ways of healing. So just to broaden the picture as opposed to just what people hear over and over again, you know, to think out of the box. Michael Skinner, we're going to have to stop. I want to thank you so much for being my guest on Safe Space. Well, thank you for having me. This is Dr. Ann. I've been speaking to musician and advocate Michael Skinner about his own story of recovery from a childhood with horrific abuse and the way that he's gone on to offer these resources to others who also suffer from trauma. The website, I want to give you two websites. The first is survivingspirit.com, and that's the website for hope, healing, and health through the creative arts and advocacy. And the second website is if you'd like to listen to some of Michael's music, you can go to mskinnermusic.com. I want to thank Gabe Graben for producing the show, Jen Hodson for mixing the sound, Maurice Lennon for the music, and Jim Russell for being my consultant. If you did not get to hear this whole interview and you want to go back and catch all of it, please go to our website at safespaceradio.com. You can also subscribe there to get a weekly email with a link to that week's show. You can also download us from iTunes and like us on Facebook. Next week, I'll be interviewing Julia Kolpitz of the Coalition to End Domestic Violence, looking at the links between childhood abuse and domestic violence. Coming up next is Speak Freely.